1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Tethered Nation, you guys have heard me talk about the saddle setup, tethered saddle setup, their Predator platform for quite some time. This is the second full season that I've used it. Um, I've killed out of it twice now, uh, and really what it has helped me do, I figured instead of, you know, I've given you guys specs, the weight, how light it is, bulky free that it is, and so on and so forth, but I thought today I would give you a little bit of a testimonial. Um, as, you know, I will credit, you know, and, and there's been a lot of people who've had a lot of influence on how I've started to hunt and how I've kind of evolved as a hunter, but I would say there's been no piece of equipment that's been more instrumental in me making that evolution than Tethered's saddle setups. Um, the reason I say that is, is that, you know, I'm a guy that works like a normal job, like everybody else out there. And so when I go on hunting trips or I'm hunting, you know, I have a limited time to get, to get stuff done. Um, you know, so I typically want to hunt more aggressively and that's something I've challenged myself with the past, you know, year and a half was to just, you know, to be more aggressive and don't lay back. Um, and the saddle setup has really helped me do that because I've spent much more time with boots on the ground scouting than I ever have in years, years past. And that's really because, I'm not carrying a bunch of bulky stuff into the into the timber with me. And so I don't mind. It's not a hindrance to carry my saddle setup. And that way, when I find fresh sun, I can get into the tree and I don't have to leave and come back and drop scent. You know, if once I see it, I'm in the tree hunting it. I'm not finding it, setting up a stand, taking the time to do that, then leaving and coming back and hunting it the next day. I'm literally getting into the tree and hunting it at that moment. And I can't say that if I was using any other setup other than a saddle setup, specifically tethered gear, that I would be making the same strides I'm making now and becoming a more aggressive and a more mobile hunter. So if this is something that you're interested in, if you want to challenge yourself to be more mobile, more aggressive, and go find deer instead of letting the deer find you, then I would suggest that you go to tetherednation.com and check out all their saddle gear. I guarantee you if you get into it, you won't be disappointed uh, and you'll probably become an addict like me. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm actually having a little bit of Skull Brew Coffee this morning while I record this. Uh, if you're not aware of what Skull Brew Coffee Company is, it's a business that my wife and I started. Uh, in order to give back more to conservation, we roast premium coffee, and it ships out within hours of roasting, guaranteeing that you will get the freshest coffee available. The kicker is that we donate 10% of our proceeds back to conservation. You choose where the donation goes at checkout. Check us out at SkullBrewCoffee.com, and let's do some good together and help protect wild places one cup at a time. Visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and pledge your support of conservation today. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 157. Today, I'm answering your listener questions with a little help from my buddy, Chad Sylvester. So stay tuned.
All right, all right, all right. What is going on, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're feeling good. Hope you're feeling fine. Got another cool podcast on tap for you today. As far as my hunting update for the week, it is nada. Um, this past weekend, the weather was a little bit gross out, and uh, truth be told, I had some work to do over the weekend, and so I wasn't able to uh, able able to get out, which isn't uh, you know I kind of view the hunting that I get to do over the course of gun season because uh, you know carry my bow with me during that time of year. I kind of view it as a bonus. Um, and so I did get two hunts in during the course of gun season and, uh, had to take this past weekend off. But the good news is, is that I'll have a little bit of time off over the Christmas holiday. Um, I was potentially going to take a trip over that holiday to go hunt with some buddies, uh, out of state for a quick four or five day, uh, trip, but <clears throat> the work schedule wasn't going to allow it. I have some meetings and stuff that I need to attend at the end of the week. So I can't get there. I can't travel those days. Um, and then probably thought better and thought that it was probably just a better, better choice to stay home over the course of that weekend and get a nice long weekend in with the, uh, with my wife and my daughter and have a nice, just kind of cozy, uh, you know, Christmas holiday weekend leading into the holiday itself. Uh, and then I, I will, you know, get out during, uh, next weekend to do a little bit of hunting, um, uh, just here around, around the house. Um, you know, and that was the other incentive, I guess, for me sticking around so I still have a buck tag here in Pennsylvania to fill. So I thought rather than maybe traveling to a different state, you probably win some points with the with the wife by sticking around and also um, have a tag to fill here in the state. So not gonna not gonna stretch this up front out too long, um, just because I want to get right to it. Uh, we we're doing a Q and A answering session today, and I actually uh, enlisted the help of my buddy Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear to give me a hand. Uh, he and I, you know, we we talk frequently on the phone. We haven't we haven't seen each other in person in a little while, and uh, at the upfront of this, he had a really cool encounter. Um, at the beginning of the year, we talk a little bit about that. And then otherwise, you know, he and I just kind of go through the list of questions that you guys sent in. You guys sent in a ton of them, uh, which was awesome to the point that, you know, Chad and I were able to share, uh, you know, over the, over the, uh, over Skype and over the phone, it's uh, of course, but, uh, share a, a drink together and just kind of go through these. So this session ended up running like, I want to say almost three hours. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to probably break this into two podcasts. So the first uh, segment of po- uh, of the podcast, we'll get a little bit of his his journey from his uh, from his season uh, this year so far, um, and then along with answering a handful of questions, and then the next the the part two of this podcast I'll put out, which will all be the remainder of the uh, listener Q and A. Some really great questions. We talk a little bit about. I think in this one specifically, we'll probably cover some of the challenges that we had from this year, um, you know, the, the debate of, uh, you know, hunting scrapes versus rubs, um, you know, is, is, is another question we'll probably cover in this one. And we do touch on a little bit of saddle hunting because the cool thing was, was that, you know, Chad has saddle hunted in the past, um, several years ago, I want to say probably like five years ago, I think he started using uh, an old trophy line of some sort and he really didn't dig it. Um, and then he, you know, was, uh, able to meet up with Greg and Ernie, uh, from Tethered and I was able to convince him to maybe try a saddle, and uh, now that's kind of the way he's he's hunting for the most part now, which is cool. So we did get some saddle questions, and we talk a little bit about saddle hunting, and uh, and and, uh, and address some of those uh, questions specifically. But without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and turn this thing over to the Q and A. As always, I appreciate you guys listening, and if uh, I don't get a chance to talk to you beforehand, I hope everyone out there has a happy and safe, Merry Christmas, Merry Holiday, Happy New Year. All that good stuff. I hope Santa Claus is good to you. I hope you get some time with some friends and family and and just enjoy, uh, hopefully, a little bit of rest and relaxation and get out into the timber if you can. So thanks for listening. 
All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I've got my buddy on. I think I, f- I feel like I mention you on just about every podcast that I do. Your name your name <laughs> creeps in there in some way, shape, or form. But uh, I'm joined by my brother from another mother, Mr. Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear. How you do- oh, He's also known affectionately around these parts as Rodeo, if for those of you that don't know. <laughs> but uh, how's it going, brother? Uh, doing well, man. Enjoying, uh, enjoying the afternoon, the evening, I guess. Now, um, got myself a glass of the bird, yeah. as we call it over here, and just, uh, just relaxed and excited to excited to talk and catch up, man. I, it's been forever since we've actually seen each other. I know. Um, but the, you know, we're always we're always talking on the phone, yes, yeah. and deer hunting, yeah. life. Personal stuff, so yeah, exactly. Doing good, man. How how you been? I'm doing all right, man. You know, it was just um, we were talking, you know, offline before we started recording. Just work's been crazy busy, man. Since I got back from Iowa, it's you know, uh, understandably so. You know, you're gone for two weeks, and it's just like it's you know, you come back and nothing has changed, but everything has changed at the same time. So you're just trying to catch back up, and then it's always because that trip always happens like right before Thanksgiving. It's like short weeks, and then like you're right into like the the push toward the end of the year, you know, where, you know, all your work is due before the end of the year, you got to wrap up financials and client work and stuff like that. So that's, you know, that's the story of my life right now. So I'm really just like holding on by a thread, trying to get through next week to where I get a couple of days off for, uh, for the holiday. And I've, I've bought literally one Christmas gift this year to this point. So I hope you're <laughs> further ahead than I am. Well, uh, I'm actually behind you cause I've bought nothing, <laughs> but I am, <laughs> I'm very thankful that my wife does basically 99% of the shopping. So yeah. we're pretty much uh we're uh, we're pretty much we're pretty much done, tapped out, whatever you want to say. Right. Um but it's, you know, thank God that uh my wife is a saint because I would really be screwed. <laughs> yeah, if it were up to you, man, I think everyone would be getting like a roll of chew in their stocking. Is what I think. <laughs> like the kids would all each get a roll of chew. <laughs> Between that and bourbon, cowboy boots, yeah, something something along those lines. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it would be. It would be a roll of chew in your stocking, and then it would be a it would be bourbon, <laughs> cowboy boots, and like, you know, like a I don't know, like some broadheads or something for the kids. Be like, hey, don't use all that at once. You might hurt yourself. You know. But yeah, the wife does the same thing here, man. Like she's got everything on lockdown. Uh, you know, for the for the kiddo and stuff like that. I literally the only gift I bought was hers, and she knew what she was getting. And then she actually bought it herself because she knew where she could save money. So, so I really didn't buy anything. I was just like, hey, I'm gonna get you this. She was like, yeah, cool. I'll go ahead and buy it. I was like, awesome, done. Don't even need to wrap it. It's literally sitting in the garage. Yeah. So, pretty stoked. <laughs> pretty stoked about that. But uh. Man, but before we get into today's topic at hand, just so everyone out there that's listening knows what we're going to get into, is uh, I had a bunch of you write in uh, some listener uh, questions to to get answered today, which is, you know, I always love this episode. I think you did one of the Q&A episodes with me last year when we were in Harrisburg, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yep, yep. And- and uh, we had a bunch of people write in, so appreciate you know all those folks who wrote in. We'll try to get to as many of them as we possibly can. Um, the ones we don't get to, you know, we'll we'll f- have a follow up session at some point and try to get the uh, get the rest of them. So always super appreciative of you guys helping out, helping me out, you know, getting this podcast pulled together, man. But I know you and I have been talking throughout the throughout the year, but you've had kind of a you know before we get to the Q and A, you've had a little bit of a roller coaster roller coaster bow season man so uh so why don't you why don't you give the folks out there listening the deets on what what you've had going on since like october till now yeah it uh it has been roller coaster is the best way to describe it um 
emotionally. I guess if you want to talk about the emotional side of things, it's uh, it's been pretty up and down. Um, you know, going into the season, I told myself I was going to focus on public lands closer to home so I could actually spend more time in the woods, spend more time scouting versus traveling, you know, four or six hours away from home uh, to hunt because it makes it really difficult just to throw yeah. an evening hunt or throw a morning hunt uh, before or after work. Um, it makes it damn near impossible. Yeah. So, you know, the first couple of weeks of the season in Ohio, um, we opened just a little bit early. We actually opened up uh, like September 28th here. So mm-hmm. the first couple of weeks, we were bouncing around the swamp, you know, just trying to glass deer, find deer. And uh, that led into the second week of October, third week of October. Mm-hmm. And I got a message from from Dan Infault, uh, one of our good friends. Yeah. And we uh, we were out at his place in the spring. And uh, we had just, you know, we were out there BS and did, did a content session. And in that talk, or after actually we stopped recording, we started talking about Ohio Public Land. And I said, hey, man, if you ever want to come out, chase big deer. Like, I got a place that... Uh, you know, it's hard to hunt, but like it would fit your mentality, your style to a T. Right. So middle of October, he sends me a Facebook message. He's like, Hey, the beast crew's thinking about heading to Ohio to hunt. And I was like, awesome. Like I got instantly pumped. I was like, if you guys are coming out, let me know. We can link up. I can, you know, I'll throw you my recommendations. I actually sent him some recommendations. These are the areas that I hunt. Like, if you guys want to come out, let me know. We'll link up. And I remember so, whenever you when you told me this, because I actually, even though I was going to Iowa, I was like, son of a bitch. I was like, I want to go on that hunt. Yeah. I knew where you guys were going, and I was like, I want to do that. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this. I mean, this is a really, it kind of gets long and drawn out, so I'll try to make it as short as possible. But those guys did not end up coming to Ohio. But. Um, prior to, you know, cause they had thought they were going to come like that first, uh, that first week of November. Right. So this is, this is like October 18th to through the 20th, somewhere in there. So we had, uh, we were sitting in the office, Cameron and I, and we decided, Hey, like if these guys are going to come, we need to go out, put some cameras up, um, and get some Intel for, you know, let them run for a couple of weeks and then, uh, do a little bit of scouting and, and figure out what's going on. So if we all get down there as a group, we can get a jump start, um, you know, for the, first week of november so on our way down there we had um you know there, i have a bunch of cameras out down there it's yeah. it's not a secret i mean it's uh the area that you hunt you i mean you're very very familiar with that place yeah and it's very difficult to the cameras are really i guess broad and spread out um so it's very difficult to just go down there and start pulling cards like you're walk you're walking miles in between card pools so to go down there and hang and check cameras and scout, you really got to have a plan and be really efficient with your time. Otherwise, you're just not going to get very much done. So on the way down, we had planned to go in this one certain area and kind of we were basically just going to go in, scout, hang cameras. And directly across from that, there was a there was a well, I guess directly across from where we were going to park to access the piece that we were interested in. There was a camera there that we had checked over the summer in June or July. Mm-hmm. And when we checked that card in June or July, I actually picked up a, a shed off a three-year-old deer right in front of the camera. And when we checked the card, we thought that deer was probably like 130-inch deer, 130-inch 10-pointer, probably a three-year-old. Right. And uh, so that camera had been unchecked since then. And Cameron said, hey, you know, we should go check that camera. 
while we're while we're parked right here and i was like no like i have a we have a handle on what's going on on that ridge i don't think there's any need for us to go over there and check that we just need to be efficient get all these other cameras out and scout and he was like dude it's a quarter mile from the truck like let's just go in at dark i was like all right well we could do that right i was like well if we're gonna go in at dark we might as well go in and and hunt it for an hour and see what happens you know so this specific spot is a it's a bench system just above the bottom one third it's somewhere between the bottom one third and halfway up uh halfway up this ridge and it's on an oak flat there's a there's a drainage on one end that goes into kind of a greenbrier patch and in a less defined saddle so there's bedding on both sides basically of this oak flat and the bedding's probably there's probably four or five hundred yards apart from these two bedding areas right and, and then and isn't the, there that, if i'm remembering the spot right isn't it like on the back side of that that huge clear cut is that the right spot yeah so it's on the it's on a western western facing slope um and it's probably about it's probably about a half a mile from that from that clear cut okay yeah um yeah. Oh, well, I guess there's two clear cuts there. The one I think that that where we saw, um, where, we, where you and I were hunting that Chrysler buck. Yeah. It's on the back. It's on the it's on the back side of of that clear cut. Right. Is, is okay. the spot. Yep. And it's basically um, there's a there's a primary scrape there, and I say primary. There's uh, that, that camera's been sitting there for two plus years mm-hmm. watching the scrape, and there's one giant scrape there, several licking branches in this tree, and then there's a couple um, scrapes in that, you know, I'm talking like in a 30-foot radius, there's probably four or five other scrapes there. Right. And there's rubs and whatever leading up to it. Um, so that camera's watching that scrape. So anyways, we get in there that morning. We get set up. Actually, I'm, I'm hanging. We're, we're in saddles. So I'm, uh, I'm hanging sticks, and I get all set up, and Cameron's down there buzzing through the photos on this camera in the dark and he's like he's i could hear him say oh my god oh chad <laughs> and i'm like you know like what what's going on and i'm like there a big deer on there and he's like yeah there's there's some good ones on here i'm like oh cool you know and that's all i thought of right and our expect my expectations it's a super low deer density area so the expectations going down there and just throwing like random hunt at something is like a shot in the dark basically i mean yeah. it's that's truly what it is yeah so we get set up I get set up and I tell him, come on up the tree. So he comes, he comes up and, uh, you know, he has his camera gear. So it's just cracking gray light and 20 minutes goes, goes by and we hear a deer working a scrape down below us on that, on that lower bench. And it's probably that bench is exactly actually 30 yards hmm. below us from the tree that we're in. And this is, this, this is October 24th. So still ton of, ton of leaves on a tree on the trees. Can't really see much. Anyways, you hear this deer come in, work a scrape, can't see it. And he's down there for like 10 minutes. And then you hear him, after he gets done working a scrape, you hear him. He's just down there walking on this bench, probably just grazing on those white white oak acorns. And you hear those steps get further away from us. And the whole time we're talking, you know, whispering back and forth, like, do you see, can you see this deer? Can, like, where is he? Right. You know, what is he? We can't see anything. So as this deer starts to get further and further away from us, and this whole th- and this now it's been like it's probably been fifteen minutes, right? right? And as this deer starts to get further away from us, Cameron says, "Do you have a grunt call?" I said, "No, I <clears throat> never carry. I don't usually carry a grunt call." 
and he was like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to reach over and grab this little sapling and just start, you know, shaking it and, and breaking the branches and, and raking off the tree that we're on to sound like, so it sounds like a deer working the scrape that we're and the scrapes, you know, we're 20 yards off the scrape. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to do this to, to sound like a deer working the scrape. So he does that for like 20 seconds. And then instantly, like I hear these footsteps come back towards us and I peek around the tree and all I see is giant dark rack, like <laughs> absolute monster. And I, you know, Cameron's to my right, my bow's to my left. The, that primary scrape is out, out to my left, I guess. And this deer's coming in from my right. So I peek over, see it's a shooter, grab my bow. I'm at full draw. And when I see the deer, he's at like 25 yards. So he's like super he's close. On, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he's honest. So I when I saw he was a shooter, I had my bow in my, you know, I reached over, grabbed my bow, get over top of my bridge, and I'm at full draw. This deer comes in to 17 yards and stops behind two trees and like there's some green briars and stuff there. So, I mean, 17 yards broadside, have a shot. Like I'm looking through my peep sight and all I, see, all I can think is, oh, it's a gut shot. Like I don't want to take that. So I'm waiting for this deer to take two more steps. And at this point, I can't see what he is. Like right. you can't see any of his antlers, can't see his head, you can't see his front shoulder, and you can't see his back legs. Like all you see is basically torso midsection. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So and Cameron has a camera. The camera's rolling now. Um, so a minute goes by, deer doesn't move. Two minutes goes by, deer doesn't move. And I, finally, I'm like, I got to let my bow down. I let my bow down, and you kind of, the deer, it's still, like, he's still standing still. Like, he came into a point where he could see whatever made that noise, like, down around that scrape area, but whatever made that noise could not see him. Like, he just came to the edge of that of that cover and would not take another step. Yeah. And he, he, just, he just knew, you know. So long story short, um, you know that he, he he didn't like something after I think three three minutes and forty seconds he didn't like something and kind of backed up and boogied out of there to like twenty five yards and then stared back you know kind of in our direction so he didn't like what he whatever happened he didn't like that he didn't see a deer you know down there working that scrape hitting mm-hmm. that scrape um but it you know after we looking at the footage and then looking at the trail camera pictures the deer's is a is a Boone and Crockett deer. Right. How big he is, I don't know. He's at least 185 inches, just an absolute giant. Yeah. And then going back and looking at that footage again, like I I the shot was better than what I thought. I thought the shot was going to be you know really back in his guts, but I could have snuck one in there was if he, I would have had my wits about me. Was he quartering away from you a little bit or was he quartering toward what was like his No, body he he was quartering to just Barely. I mean, just ever so slightly. I mean, it was almost a perfect broadside shot. Just about perfect. Um, but there was, there was a little bit of green briars in there, but the green briars were closer to him. They were almost right next to him. So as far as, like, there was a shot there. It was just right. me thinking, like, not seeing that front leg and that front shoulder and not seeing his back leg. There was nothing. It's like a, a brown torso in between two trees. Yeah, you had is, no you had no context. You had no context to like have a reference right. point of like where exactly you were to know, you know, it's like at least if you could see a little bit of back leg, you could kind of 
tell, you know, where you're at in terms of like the length of his body and whatever. Or if you could see just at least a little bit of front shoulder, you definitely know. You know what I mean? Right. But well, not only that, yes, no context as far as you know, length of body or like the deer never moved until he's just back straight up. So there was like, if he would have moved one of his legs or something, you could have seen uh, a muscle move or some type of uh, some type of something in you know on his body move. There may have been some indication there exactly to his position, but there was just it just never happened. Right. Um. You know, as a bow hunter, you're always like my. I never thought like that. It wasn't going to take two more steps. Like you never, you never think that. It's, yeah, but, I know. <laughs> Uh, long no, story it, short yeah i, sh- I sh- should have took the shot didn't and uh you know i made three more trips down there to hunt that deer um never saw him on the hoof again did have some trail camera pictures of him during the day through november like no between uh i think the last daylight pictures i had of him in that spot was november 15th or 16th right um went down there the week before thanksgiving or the week of thanksgiving and told myself, and I think you and I talked about this, yeah. you know, I was going down there to scout to either lay eyes on him, bump him, or kill him. Right. And I ended up did bumping bumping a deer out of a bed, um, but never saw exactly what deer it was, and that was probably a quarter mile from where I had that encounter. So what, whether it was him or not, I have no idea. It laid out to be, you know, it was a big bed by itself, so upper one-third, typical buck bed, right? but did not see the deer well, that, there was up, a yeah. there was a second big one that was in there too, S bend, right? We, yes, yes. So that's that's the other side of it. Um, there's there's a there was a hundred an easy hundred sixty inch ten pointer down there. He's probably a hundred seventy inch ten pointer on you know on that yeah. camera as well in the daylight. So there was two deer in there, and that that S bend deer was a deer that I had been hunting in 2016 and 2017 when you and I were down there. Yeah. Um, and that's the reason I stuck that camera on that bench was to kind of kind of spread my cameras out a little bit to figure out what was going on with him to try to get on him. So that camera ended up leading me to this bigger deer this year. Yeah. So it's it's a long, you know, it's a long, super drawn-out story, and there's a little more to it, but that's the, that's the, gist that's the basic it. thing. So, yeah, yeah just... And in, in my mind, like having an encounter with a deer that size, and I say 185 inches, he's, I've gone through every scenario. I measured that shed and referenced the pictures as a three-year-old. As a three-year-old, he was between 150 and 153. Um, and I think that deer is, is probably in the 90s. Right. You know, I don't think he's quite 200 inches, but um, he's a giant. just a, an opportunity. Yeah, an opportunity on public land or a, on any land on a deer like that, like, that could be, could be once in a lifetime. But down there, it's like you work so hard to 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 find a deer to get on deer because the numbers are so low. Um, I just really beat myself up about that for for yeah. a couple of weeks. But you know, I'm over it now. I you you know, you had the opportunity once. You just got to do the work to get on them again. So yep, um, that's just it. Yeah, it's, it's no like, different than this. Yeah, yep. You just got to keep kind of you know, grinding through. And I know you made a couple other trips and we've talked like since, you know, about, you know, going down and, you know, and I know we talked a little bit, like even whenever, I think when I was coming back from, a, from Iowa or whatever, just because, you know, of course my failures out there were well, well chronicled. And so we were kind of talking and not reminiscing, but just kind of talking about like, you know, missed opportunities and stuff like that. I think I even, you and I even talked after I missed the, the first time out there and it was just like, you know, you just got to kind of keep, 
trying to figure it out. You know, it's like they didn't, they don't disappear yep. necessarily. You just got to kind of figure out where they've, where they've moved off to. And I don't know, we, you and I talked about, you know, the, the, the cool thing this year was I got to take that trip. The, the, the bummer of it was, is that you and I have been hunting together regularly every year around that time. And so I missed that getting to spend that time right. with you, you know, hunting. Um, and so our plan is next year is we're going to go back and, uh, Mm-hmm. hit that beast again and and get after it and i think what we did talk about was that we were like you know what we know there's at least three going to be three good deer in that general ridge system because there's the s bend there's the big one you had the encounter with and there's the other one that you found the shed from so we know and you know for people out there listening they might say well that's only three deer and how much you know how much space right but it's like if that area, when we say there's low deer density, it's like when we hunted there in 20, what was it, 2017? I think it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It yep. was 2017. We hunted, you know, nine days straight, and I personally saw three deer in nine days. You know, so when we right. say low yeah, deer density, it's like that's that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's 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 super typical for down there. Yeah. Um, you know, you can hunt all week and not see deer. Like, I've, I've, I've been in that situation, too. Um, so that's, it, it's just, a, it's a hard place to hunt, but it's, uh, it's super rewarding. It's super fun. Yeah. And it just fits like my mindset and your, like our mindset together. I think we, we think and hunt very similarly. Um, and it just, you know, it just fits our, fits our style. So yeah. it's a, it's a lot of fun to be down there with you. Yeah. And, it, and you got to hunt with the right guy in that spot, not just from like a meshing of styles, but like positive mindset, because you're going to have some tough oh, days, sure. you know what I mean? Where you're not going to see anything. Oh yeah. And if you're if you get beat up over not seeing anything, it's not because you're not a good hunter. It's because literally there's not any deer around there. That's why I was saying like the frame of reference of how many deer I saw in nine days is because when we say there, we know that there's three good deer in that area, and this is a huge piece of public. Well, like if there are three good deer in a general area, like that is really promising for that spot for that area. Yeah. You know, because you might yeah. not have a good deer on a thousand acres. <laughs> You know what I mean? And, right. And, and that's right. in that, you know, that place. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that hunt, man. And it's kind of interesting because it's almost the same as the last time we went because I'm going to be going out west to Colorado right before we go to that. So I'll come back in like, like good shape to be able to run those mountains this year again because that yep. place will, that place will eat you up as far as like the terrain and the, the mountains and ridges and stuff like that. It's not for the, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, man. It's, it's got some elevation and it's, it's jungle thick too. So. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Actually, I mean, hopefully we, we get down there and do some, do some postseason stuff, uh, you know, this spring, late that winter, is, early spring and, uh, yeah, see what it's, that what it's like. The Cause there's, there's definitely some more scouting to figure that deer out. If, you know, um, I got cameras down there and th- there's a bunch of daylight stuff happening, but there's, there's more pieces. Uh, there's port, more, more information that we need to know to, you know, to get down there and kill that deer with, within a you know five to seven days yeah um you know if you could sit down there for two weeks or three weeks you could probably make it happen but fit that into seven days i mean that's whatever you know five days seven days nine days three days whatever whatever number that is like there's there's some more stuff we need to figure out yeah yeah and you definitely got to be prepared to do a lot of walking in that in that piece that's not a that's not a joint necessarily that you just kind of go i have one stand and i'm going to sit this this spot that was kind of some of what my downfall was, I think, the last time we were there was that I moved around, but it, like I did, you know, I knew that weren't going to see a lot of deer, and I was like, and I thought I had some decent spots, or that we had some decent spots, especially that one, uh, 
Scrape Ridge, I was like mm-hmm. bound and determined to make that spot work. And it might have bit me in mm-hmm. the ass because I was I got married to it a little bit. Um and probably right. probably screwed myself a little bit. But so anyway, with that, I think we can now move into question and answers, a little bit of Q and A from the listeners if if you if it tickles your fancy. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, man. I'm gonna take a little sip of my bourbon here. I'm having a little Mickner's. Um, someone bought this for me for my birthday, I think last year or whatever, and I'm just I just wrapped up the bottle. So good old Mickner's. Yeah, nice. Yeah, give them a give that up. is uh give them a plug. <laughs> you want to give them a little plug? Yeah, maybe 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 they want to get get involved. You know, <laughs> wasn't that the uh, first first whiskey company founded in America? Is that am I? Am I right? Or am I thinking I think of some, you're right. Else? I got the bottle here. I'm going to look at it because I feel like I read that on the bottle somewhere. USA number one. I, small batch. 1753 is when it was established. It says USA number. I think it says USA number one because it was maybe the first one. Pre Revolutionary War quality standard dating back to 1753. Yeah. So if it wasn't one, if it wasn't the first, it was damn near the first. Yeah, yeah. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, I don't think this one's from 1752. That'd probably be a little pricier than like the $40 <laughs> price tag at the state store. But <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you can add about six, six zeros onto that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the cool thing about this, not to get on like a whiskey and bourbon topic, but for those out there listening, it's like I'm, I don't drink a lot of bourbon anymore, but I'm a little bit of a bourbon connoisseur. Um, uh, to to a degree, um, and Mickner's, from what I understand, is um, supposed to be what I'll classify as like the the poor man's um, Pappy Van Winkle. It's supposedly mm-hmm. very reminiscent of Pappy, um, but just without the exclusivity and the price tag with it. So right. that's why my buddy got it for me. But anyway, listener questions. I don't think they tuned in to listen to a bourbon a bourbon tasting catalog here so we'll go ahead and dive into some deer hunting so first question that came in uh this is kind of a cool one too man i always like these this particular question is biggest changes that we've made from last year to this year uh, in terms of like our hunting so you know it could be a piece of gear it could be a style it could be you know anything really but i'll let you kind of field it first and then i'll and then i'll piggyback off you so what was the biggest changes you made from last year to this year um my my biggest change would have to be involving my gear, uh, both my climbing system and and the transition to almost solely a saddle. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that you're you know you're a huge fan of uh, of saddle hunting, mm-hmm. mobile hunting, um, and I've always been mobile. And I, I've actually had a I've actually had a saddle since 2015. I don't. Uh, uh, an old trophy line tree yep. saddle, which back in the eighties, I think they were, they were one of the first mainstream saddle companies to market towards whitetail hunters. And I think at one time, like they, they had a patent, some type of patent on, uh, 
on what they were doing. I don't know the specifics of it, but I, uh, I actually got rid of that cause I didn't like it. And, uh, you know, I hooked up, met, uh, Greg and Ernie over at Tethered. Um, actually the introduction came from yourself, I believe. Yep. Um, at ATA. And, and got set up yep. with those. Get, yeah. Yep. Sat down with those, oh, that, you know, round table or whatever with you and a few other folks. And, uh, you know, played with that in the off season and knew I was going to use it. Actually, actually one of the late season hunts last year, I, I, uh, I ran with it and knew I was going to use it. But after in the early season, after, um, after I had used it a few times with the, with the climbing system that I, that, uh, I kind of modified for myself, um, there was just no going back to mm-hmm. a tree stand. Um, the advantages that a saddle has uh, with mobility, being able to keep the tree in between you and the deer. Um, you know, I think there's, that's the big, for me, that's one of the biggest advantages is being able to keep that tree between you and the deer just for the sole purpose of movement. When you're drawing your bow, um, you know, it's, it's just made me so much more confident. It's yeah. easy to get in and out. It's less noise. Um, you know, you're set up faster. Like I, I just personally, I can't find any, any cons with, uh, yeah, or downside with 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 running with what I'm running, and on the stick side, I'm still using XOP sticks, but I I went to a rope mod, so got rid of the cam lock buckles, went to a rope um, a rope mod, and then I use a sling to bring those sticks in with me. Mm-hmm. So they're like a, it's a like over the shoulder sling. Yep, where all four of those sticks or three sticks are on my back, and I can put I can basically take those off one at a time. While I'm going up the tree, and never I can get up the tree, set up, and pull my bow up in one in one shot. Yeah. And on that top, and I'm not running a platform like you are, but on that top stick, I have a, uh, I have a, I have a mod that's basically it's like a six inch by four inch platform that bolts onto my very top stick. So just above that standoff, I actually do have a four by four inch by six inch platform. Um, so. You know, I'm, I'm not really bringing anything. And then, and those sticks are a little heavier than probably what some guys are using, mm-hmm. but it's still lighter than what I was using, you know, with a, with a hang and bang stand. So right. that would definitely be my biggest change from, from 18 to 19. Yeah, man. It, it made me super happy to know that you were like all getting into the saddle game. Cause I know I was like, I, cause you had experience with like previous gear and stuff like that. And my first experience with, with saddles was literally, you know, using, you know, the, the, the tethered stuff, you know what I mean? And so for me, it was right. like, that was my, and I was like, oh, how could no one, how could someone not just absolutely love this? You know, and I know you were working with older right. gear previously. So you had some trepidation, which is natural from a previous experience. Mm-hmm. that was less than, that was less than stellar. And so whenever you started, we started talking and you were adopting it more and more. And I was like, that is awesome. I was like, that is sweet. Cause I mean, it is one of those things, man, where it's like, it's, it's like one of the only pieces of gear that like I would like sing the praises of like and, and shout from the mountaintop and regardless of like brand, of course, you know, I love Greg and Ernie and, you know, those guys, you know, they're super awesome. They're, you know, partners of the show and stuff, but it's just like in general, like the concept, like people should check it out because it's that, it's that like, oh. it's that changing. It, it, it'll change the way you hunt that, or it can change the way you hunt that much. If, if you, if you let it, because for me, switching to a saddle was less about, weight and was always more about like you know i'm a small dude so when you put a when you put a full-size stand on my back even if it's like a lone wolf assault or whatever which is what i was using previously it's like 
in comparison to like the size of my body and my torso, like that stand makes up like a large percentage of like my length. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, you know, I'm banging into stuff as I'm walking in and stuff like that. So it was always not so much about the weight, even though I do enjoy the weight savings, but it was more for me mm-hmm. about the bulk nature of it to where it's like, give me a smaller profile to be able to slip through the timber to where I'm not smacking off of every branch, every twig, every piece of brush and making noise as I'm, you know, as I'm kind of going through, um, which was like the, you know, the biggest thing, biggest thing for me. And it really, you know, my biggest change this year and, you know, wasn't necessarily going to a saddle, but it was what the saddle allowed me to do. Cause last year was really, I, it took me last year to kind of figure out like how I could run it, you know what I mean? And, and make it kind of my own. That's the cool thing about it is everyone can kind of make it their own thing. And this year was really about utilizing it to its fullest ability and allow me to hunt the way I wanted to hunt, which was super mobile and aggressive. Um, and that was probably the biggest change for me is that I've kind of over the year, over the years become more and more aggressive and I've talked about it and I've kind of talked myself into it to give myself the confidence to go do it. And this was the first year where I really fully adopted and embraced that mobile aggressive and didn't look at some of the things in the past that I would look at as a negative, like bumping a deer or whatever. Like I didn't see that as something that was a, a terrible thing. It was me learning where the deer were at. And then now I know where to hunt them. And so it was more so taking that type of approach this year, which was the biggest change for me. And then, you know, on the gear side of things, I made some addition. I'm always fiddling with my with my gear. So it's like this year I went from, you know, last year using full length sticks to this year, I cut them down to 17 inches and, uh, a five-step rock climbinator, you know, and with two sticks, I can set my platform high. I can basically get about 16 feet with that setup, mm-hmm. uh, 15, 16 feet. And for me, a lot of times that's enough where I'm hunting. Cause I'm, you know, as you know, you know, Chad, like in swamps, it's like you get cover pretty low, uh, especially during the early season and get into rut. Like I might have to climb a little higher. Um, but out in Iowa, I didn't really need to climb any higher than that just because there's not pressure. So deer don't really look up in trees. Pennsylvania is a different story. I got to get a little higher because deer do know to look up trees. So you do have to get a little bit more height. So in that case, I will take a third stick with me. Um, and with that, it's like, I'm easy. I'm able to get up to 20 feet, you know, if not a little bit, if not a little bit higher. So those are probably the biggest changes that I've made this year. Um, and then move into a back tension release, you know, which was you know something I did throughout the year. So Anything else for you, man, on the biggest uh, changes for you? Anything to add, or we uh, want to move on to the uh, to the next jammer? One one thing I would like to point out about um, that you mentioned making that saddle your own. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the one thing I would like to like just mention about uh, the tethered mantis is that it's a modular. It's built to be modular, so there's all kinds of uh, micro fit adjustments, um, um, molly straps around the back to where you could add dump pouches or sis haulers or like, yes, the, the saddle itself is a, it's a phenomenal product. It's way better than what I was using. You know, that dated product that I was using back in 2014, 2015, but the ability to make it your own to fit how you want to hunt with it is, I think one of the bigger advantages that it has over, um, other products available on a marketplace mm-hmm. currently yeah. like that's, that's a, I think especially with like the guys that are mobile hunting, the DIY guys, I, I feel like those guys like to tinker. Like we all like to tinker with our gear. Yep. And, uh, I think that's just a, that's just another advantage, um, yeah. about the, you know, about the tethered product. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was responding to a post on Facebook to the saddle hunter forum and because someone was asking, they were new to saddle hunting and they were asking like, how do you get your, like your platform up and down the tree if you have a predator platform? 
you know, and not so much going up because, you know, I'll use a Predator pack that I have, you know, paracord loops that are on my shoulder straps of my, I've got a, I'm run, I use a, a, a Sitka Fanatic pack. And so I have paracord loops on my shoulder straps and then I basically take the hooks that, that come with your saddle and I put those, you know, basically at the ends of my, uh, of my of my predator pack, why I took the arm loops off of the predator pack, and I basically clipped those those hooks in there, and I just hooked them onto the the paracord that are already on my backpack uh, shoulder straps, and then right. that's how I that's how I carry it in. I go up the tree that way, I pull it off my back, I set it up, and then when I come down, I literally that's the cool thing about saddle hunting is like everything has a purpose. Like I don't carry anything in with me that's not dual like m- multiple use, right? So when I walk in with mm-hmm. my assist strap, that is literally what I use as my stick caddy. Because I carry my sticks over my shoulder just like you, but it's like that that cis strap allows me to be public land legal to where I wrap that around the tree, and that's what I hang all my gear off of with some pro clips. Whenever I yep. when I yep. and so and then whenever I go to climb the tree, I literally have paracord on my saddle loops on the side to where I hang my sticks off uh, one off each hip if I'm carrying three. If it's just two, I set the first one and one's on my left hip, and I go up, hang my platform. When I go to come down, I actually have a hook like another carabiner with a piece of paracord on my cis strap that actually loops over a standoff of my sticks. That's how it loops around it, right? One of it, one end, I girth hitch it around the standoff. The other end, I use that piece of paracord on like a small carabiner. Well, when I get to the top and I go to put that cis strap around the tree, I take that carabiner off, I have a piece of paracord loop that's on the back of my saddle through a, a, a molly loop, and I just clip that, that carabiner to that loop. And then whenever I go to pull my saddle, or when I go to pull my platform off, I have a piece of small paracord loop at the end of my platform. So whenever I pull it off, I just take that and clip that to the carabiner that's hanging off my ass. And that's how I come down. Mm-hmm. So it's like yep, yep. metal never touches metal. Everything is built for a purpose. Everything has dual uses. Like, so I'm not carrying extra stuff in. I, f- I try to figure out how I can take, if I, if I need this one thing, how can I make it do more than one thing so I don't have to carry an extra thing? And that to me, I think exactly. is the beauty of those systems. So, yep, sure. Cool. All right. So th- enough of that. Enough of that rant because I could wax poetically for hours about saddle hunting because I'm a nerd about it. But uh, <laughs> the next the next question is car hood scrapes or rub lines. And I'll let you uh, I'll let you take this one first since you're the guest. Well, um, that's pretty broad, and it depends on the context of the sign. Yeah. Uh, it could be it could be either it could be either or. Um, for me, it depends on what time of the year, uh, how, obviously how fresh that sign is, but all of that sign needs to relate to bedding. And it's, and, and I'm not saying anything that no one else has ever said, you know, Dan is, he's a godfather of, of these concepts and relating the sign back to bedding. But if I can find a car hood scrape, if it's a primary scrape in relation to bedding or security cover where I hunt, that would be a spot that I would hold priority over rub lines. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, I do pay attention to rubs. And if there is the find, no, if I can couple those rubs with like trail camera data and I can define that movement to a specific area or to a bedding location, absolutely I'll hunt it. But without that added, without knowing what deer made that rub, it's hard for me to... To, to hunt that sign. Um, because most of the time I can couple that scrape. I, if I see a scrape like that, I'm going to have a camera on it. That's just, 
the right. nature. But I don't always hang cameras watching rubs. Um, and to me, there's there's a couple things when I start looking at rubs and Greg's like, you know, yeah. Litzinger's like the king yeah. of, 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 of rubs and the details. And uh, I pay more attention personally to the height. And if the rub is on a, like a, on a, a smaller tree with like bushes or anything around, around that tree, then I want to, I want to see that other stuff, you know, like that's maybe a foot away or six, eight inches away from the, the main rub. Like I want to see sign on that as well, because if, even though that I, I see a rub and I see that it's maybe thigh high or waist high, like that still could be from a two year old deer. And like, right. it's, you know, it's for me, and I'm not the greatest at I'm not the greatest at reading that stuff. Uh, to be totally honest, if I know there's a good deer in the area, yes, I pay attention to that, and then, you know, I try to relate it back to bedding and couple it with a camera. But for me, like, I don't know. In the area that we hunt, um, on that public, the deer density is like like we talked about earlier. It's super super low. It's very easy to monitor those scrapes with cameras, and that's where we see the most daylight activity. If those scrapes are related to to bedding or security cover. Now, if you get yep. those scrapes down in the bottom uh, or up on the, sometimes on the very top of a ridge, like most of that stuff's happening at night. But mm-hmm. if you can get down, um, you know, on a bench that's on a leeward side or sometimes not even on, on, on leeward sides, but if you can relate it to security cover, then, you know, that's where I'm going. I'm going to the scrape. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you and I, I mean, it's, we're, we're good buddies and we hunt very similarly and we have a lot of the same guys that we, you know, Pick, pick their brains, whether it's Litzinger, Enfold, or Eberhard, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, those are the guys that I think that we, we've we leaned on in the past to kind of, you know, validate some of the things that we're seeing or, or learn some new tricks. And I'm kind of the same way. It's like, be, being honest, it's like, I, I do like rubs. I guess I probably prefer rubs earlier earlier in the year would be probably, I think, my, my kind of perspective. Um, but I will always prioritize a scrape over over a rub most times and that's probably just more recently the only reason being is because i've really only ever had a rub line work out for me one time where it's like like a rub line to me is if i know where that bed is and i know that that and i obviously found the rub line then that to me is like the roadmap to go kill that deer and i've only ever had that mm-hmm. happen one time and it was on a private piece it was a couple couple years ago where it's like i thought i knew there was a, a deer bedded on this point i found the bed his rub line popped up and uh i ended up jumping him out of that bed i ended up pushing the envelope too close to the bed and and screwed myself and watched him jump out of the bed um and then actually he came back to it and another another guy went in and turkey hunted that ridge and, and bumped him off of it and then he and then he was one of the neighbors after that um but that was the only time I've ever had a rub line really kind of work out for me. But I've recently, you know, probably in the past two years, and especially this year, um, scrapes have just been magic for me. I don't know that I've set up on a scrape, a primary scrape area this year that I didn't have, you know, bucks visit while I was there, you know, or at least pass by while I was there. Um, you know, now that being said, I think to your point, all, you know, all scrapes aren't created equal necessarily. I'm definitely looking for it. Like you said, that's in that, you know, a primary scrape area with a couple scrapes around it. It's got to be next to side cover, you know, transition cover at minimum or, you know, outside of a bedding area. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm going to prioritize. Now, the Holy Grail for me is kind of what I've run into a couple of times in Iowa, which was I found a primary scrape area with hammer rubs in it. <laughs> that was like, you know, <laughs> like an, a red arrow pointing down going like, Hey, stupid, you should sit here. 
You know what I mean? Um, you know, that's the holy grail, of course, is if you can get that, you know. And, and I agree with you, man. It's like rubs one, rubs are one of those things that I have a hard time interpreting. Again, like I've talked to Greg about it because he just he's really, really good at it. Um, you know, it, it was easy while I was in Iowa to interpret it because it's kind of hard to walk by a rub that's chest high. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, duh, big deer made that. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. But, you know, when you're not hunting an area that, you know that there's necessarily that caliber of deer that often right and you're hunting like pa or some of the places in ohio and ohio Ohio has plenty of good deer but you're not necessarily running across that caliber of sign that often or there isn't like the huge disparity between like oh that's a decent deer and it looks like a really good pennsylvania rub and then when you see a true iowa rub you're like oh shit like okay different game you know um so i think that's my two cents man it's like always always the scrape if i had like in a vacuum i'm hunting a scrape and unless you know it's unless it's early season um and i have a definitive rub line and i've done my homework and i know there's a bed close to that rub line then i might hunt the rub line so i think with that is there anything anything else it was very uh we could have also answered that by saying uh see any podcast john eberhart has done and talked about scrapes (laughs) yeah i mean there's i mean there's so many there's so many guys that uh that talk about you know different tactics and everyone kind of has their their um their own way of looking at things and their own system that works but i think when you when you start to listen to everyone's take on on sign like everyone that's getting it done it's always related back to either security cover or betting and that's you know if you can relate the sign to that you know betting in the proximity close proximity like 100 150 yards then then you should probably hunt it and then whether it's whether that's a rub or or a scrape, I think that's the you know I think that's the baseline there. Yep, yep, totally agree. All right, on to the next question. It's uh this one is saddle related yet again. Um, so this person's asking. This actually might be a good one for you because I think I might have I've touched on this maybe in the past a little bit, and it might be good just to come from you. Um, given that uh, this is your first year in the in the in the saddle full time. But uh, when saddle hunting, uh, how bad is the back strain not having something to lean back on? Um, it's not, it's not bad at all. Um, you know that was one of the things that I had some issues with back in 2014, 2015 with that older, that older saddle, and a lot of it was my own fault. It was running uh, my tether too high or too low you know not at the right height and also the saddle just didn't fit me so the saddle that i had bought was used because the company that i bought it they stopped making them you know mm-hmm. they, they uh in four in, i think in 2014 i don't think anybody was making saddles uh i at least mainstream so i had bought that thing on ebay and it didn't really fit all that well um and then you know the height that i was running my tether was probably and it's it, it is a learning curve um, you know, and there's a ton of information out there on saddlehunter.com and, and Greg and Ernie are, you know, they're doing, you know, I think that's why tethered is the, the premium brand in that space is because they do such a good job of educate, ed- educating people on saddle hunting, regardless of what you're running. Like, yeah, they just want people to hunt with saddles. They don't like, yes, they want you to buy their product, but that's not the end all be all for them. So, right. Just a, just a quick note on that. But, um, on these all day sits, what I will say is it does pay to have a bigger platform than what I'm running. 
because you're able just to move and shift, make little adjustments with your feet, your hips, um, and just kind of transfer the weight around a little bit. Um, you know, it's a lot like a stand. Like if you sit or stand in a, in a hang, hang on stand, regardless of what it is, like there's going to be a point where you need to adjust and move because it's going to be uncomfortable if you're there all day. Yeah. Um, and you know, hunting with a saddle is not any different, but what I will say is, and I'm, you're going to have to help me out here, but the, the back band that tethered has, um, what's that, what's that called? Um, back band, it's uh, the recliner. Yeah, the recliner. There you yeah. go. So I was set up with one of those. Greg, or Ernie, had, Greg, Greg had sent me one of those with that original, um, that, that Manus that I had. But I didn't use it until after my first or second all-day sit. I always carried it with me, mm-hmm. but I never really, never really messed with it. Because it's something like, again, I didn't have back in 2014, 2015, and didn't have any experience with it. But using that um, actually took the comfort level probably to the next level um, to where, I mean, I could, I can hang in that and I am probably even more comfortable than I am with a stand because you don't have, like you're sitting in the stand when you sit, at least for me, and and this is probably different for, for, for different folks, but I don't get the, like the pressure points from sitting or, or, or in a saddle. I don't get the pressure points in a saddle that I would when I'm sitting in a stand, like you're sitting in the stand for whatever reason, like sometimes your butt goes numb. Sometimes your, your, uh, your feet fall asleep because you're, you know, that pressure is on like on your hamstrings, like cutting circulation off. Like, I just don't get any of that with a saddle. And, you know, it is, you know, if you, like I said, if you're there all day, your back will have a little bit of strain. Um, uh, but I think some of that too is like the fitness level or the, or the shape that you're in as a, as a hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it, if it definitely takes, you know, like shooting your bow is different. Like mm-hmm. you're definitely drawing larger um, muscle contractions from your core. So it does pay to have a strong core if you're going to be a saddle hunter. Yeah. That's one thing I would say, like get yourself in, get yourself in decent shape. Um, but the back strain, it's, that's a non-issue for me. Yeah. Complete non-issue. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on all the points, all the points that I was, that I would, that I would make. I think the recliner, it makes a big difference. You know, for me, it's like, I'm the same as you. I carried it every hunt this year. I think I've used it twice, uh, the entire year. Um, you know, just, there's not, I I don't usually get into a situation where I feel like I really need it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you're right with a platform. It does make a difference, right? You have the opportunity to kind of move in different positions to kind of alleviate pressure one way or the other if you're if you're getting a little bit uncomfortable. And I think the biggest point you make is that it's it, it is no less comfortable than a than a tree stand is. It's just different, you know. And so, you know, I've been plenty uncomfortable in tree stands in my life, and I won't say that I've been any less comfortable in a saddle. The only the only caveat I would make is like if you're if you're hunting in one of those like Summit Viper climber jammers that's like a recliner in a tree, yeah, it's hard yeah. to it's hard yeah. to beat those things. You know what I mean? If you're right. looking for that right. level of comfort, saddle hunting might not be for you, right? But if you're looking to be right. mobile and be able to kill deer and and move to kill deer and move when you need to move and you know not be bulky and less you know less weight and stuff like that, and you're comfortable being in a tree stand then you would be able to manage a saddle just fine i think there is a little bit of a learning curve i think you're right being in better shape is definitely going to help because you are using your core more um but it's not like you got to be an olympic athlete to use it either you know so um there's plenty of guys that i know that 
are using them that aren't the aren't a model of fitness and they're and they're doing just fine. So, you know, I, I think as far as comfort goes, back it's it's no different than any other method that you would use to to hunt from an ele, ele, elevated position. So, if that's a concern anyone out there has, I would go ahead and brush it by the wayside and and check it out. But uh, I think we covered that one uh, plenty good. I think we can move on to the next quest. All right, so we're moving on to the next quest. This next one is actually uh, appropriate here, um, considering we are in the throes of what I what I will call late season. This person is asking, late season public land, where are you setting up with deer having been pressured all season? So do you want to take this one first, or do you want me to take a stab at it first? I've been putting you on the spot with the first uh, first answer the past couple. Yeah, let's uh, go for it. We'll let you let you tackle this one first. I've uh, have yet to find late season success. So I'm, I, <laughs> this could be a question that might uh, might might help me out a little bit. <laughs> right. All right. So late season public land success. So I think the I think the common con, you know the common knowledge is, is like during late season you want you want to find the food right. I think the challenge is, is that, you know, a lot of times when you see, you know, major media outlets and they're talking about late season, they're, they're prioritizing those, you know, those primary food sources. And a lot of times they're referring to ag, whether it's corn, beans, you know, food plots with brassicas in it, you know, turnips, whatever the case is. Right. And yes, all those will work. So, you know, I think I would start by first is if you hunt public land that is adjacent to agriculture or farmland that has some type of, you know, cut you know, cut bean field or even better if they didn't, if they didn't cut like a piece of them or something like that, or corn that had been recently picked or whatever, like, yes, those are, those are gold mines. But when you start to get into the timber, and this is actually something I was just reading the other day. So it was kind of appropriate that this came in because it's one of those things for me too, you know, as you mentioned, Chad, that like, you know, late season I've had, I've had some decent encounters, and but I've also had the ability at those times that I was able to set up on off, off of, you know, agriculture as well. And so I started thinking about exactly this is like, you know, hunting public where you don't have, you know, those primary food sources, like what am I focusing on? I mean, I think the, the common kind of knowledge to think about and focus on is, you know, was there a really heavy, you know, white oak, you know, acorn drop on, on a piece that you're hunting in that, that particular year? Because if there is, and there's residual left over, like I would be hunting those like immediately until they're eaten up because that is going to probably be one of the things they're going to hammer. Right. I think that beyond that, you know, it's like they'll, they'll then often move off of those and then into like red oak, you know, acorns because they're a little, they have, you know, more tannins in them. They're a little bit more bitter. And so they will usually eat all the white oaks first and then move on to the other, uh, other acorns after that. I think the other thing too is like when you're talking about public and you're talking about pressured deer, like we're we, you're, we're really talking about like hunting them in in the cover. Like you're really not hunting them in open spaces any longer because you know during the early part of the season or even during the rut they'll make some mistakes and maybe come out into the open. Late season they're you know they're not they're not being driven by the wrong head at that point you know so they're 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 back to like sur- survive <laughs> surviving at that point. And so they're going to make probably, I think some would argue they'll make, they'll still make mistakes because they're just at a point where they're trying to survive. So they're, they're making mistakes to get food. I don't buy that as, as much necessarily, at least in, at least in Pennsylvania, they're, they're pretty wiry this, this time of year. And so the one thing I started thinking about was just like, we often forget how much food is in that cover. And to a deer, when they're trying to survive, it's like, 
like they're not going like, hey, I'd really like to hit that, you know, that little cache of white oak, you know, uh, white oak acorns that's over there. You know, it's like they're going, hell no, man. I've just been shot at for how many months? I'm going to go ahead and stay here in the cover. I'm going to eat some browse. And I'm also going to eat these, you know, where this stump is that the that just got logged, you know, in here, uh, an elm tree that just got cut. And there's a bunch of sprouts coming up off that stump. Like, that's great food for them, right? Because I think the one thing that we we don't remember, and this is something I have a hard time remembering, is that when a deer goes in, and I actually learned this from uh, the guys from MSU Deer Lab. I think it was MSU Deer Lab, or them or Don Higgins, but... Basically, whenever like a, a deer's metabolism as it goes through the year actually slows, and so when it gets to late season, that old adage of like deer have to eat, they got to put the weight back on after rut. There is some truth to that, but Mother Nature's you know a, a smart beast because she you know deer's metabolism slows as it goes through the fall, preparing itself, knowing that it's going to be run down, and also knowing that they're going to have a shortage of food whenever their body is probably most in need, and they're going to be the shortest on food. So their body isn't driving them as hard to hit that food at all times. So in saying that, like primary food sources aren't the driving force behind them across the board each day equally. It's really about timing your sits if you are going to have a a significant primary food source around the shittiest weather days you can possibly get because the weather will drive them to food more so than just their desire to go eat. They'll still have to eat during the day. Yes, they'll get up from their bed and they'll eat in their brows. And that's why I'd probably prioritize, you know, being in high stem count bullshit because they're going to be able to yep. find food in there, right? They're going to be able to get brows yep. in there and, and sustain themselves. If you're talking about finding like a destination food source where it's like they've got to get, they want to get, you know, just oh, I'll just say get fat for lack of a better way to say it because there's a front coming in. There's going to be three days of like hunkering down, you know, on on the backside of a ridge in like a pine thicket somewhere. You know what I mean? To stay out of the wind and out of the snow. Then that's whenever I would prioritize sitting that primary food source because the weather will drive the deer, not necessarily their desire to eat. And that's something I learned from Don Higgins because he said watching, you know, his farms. He was like, you know, you get into that weather and you know it's late season. You're expecting deer just to be piling into the field. And he's like, it just never happens. He's like, but he's like. You give me a day where it's, you know, minus 10 and driving sleet, driving snow with a 20 mile per hour wind. He's like, and there will be every deer in the woods will be in that field, will be in that food source. Right. You know, and he was like, right. and that's just, and that's how he hunts late season. Um, and if you're ever just driving around during that time of year, you know, just pay attention to like when the weather flips the crap, watch the fields and then watch the fields every other day. And you'll see that the bigger jump happens during that really, really bad weather day. It's kind of counterintuitive because we always talk about early season or earlier part of the season or even in rut, like hunting, hunting like the front side of a front or the back side of a front. Most people want to hunt like the second day after a front. You know what I mean? Like that's usually like that prime window, like the day after the second day after a, after a front. But it seems like in late season, it's literally the front is what you want to hunt. You want to hunt the crap weather of mm-hmm. it, you know? So that would be my kind of take on, you know, how... Put it this way: That's how I'm approaching it this year. I don't have any big primary food sources. Right. I'm going to be looking for leftover oaks or leftover acorns from uh, from oak drops this year. And then, aside from that, I'm going to try to nestle up as close as I possibly can to bedding cover that's just shitty thick that has a bunch of browse in there for them. And that's my plan. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a. I mean, that's a great answer. Super, super thorough. Very uh, scientific because there's a lot of factual stuff that you just spit out there. I think the commercialization of, of whitetail hunting 
that we all see, whether it's on social media or TV, like late season hunting, the first thought in everyone's mind is like you're sitting in some type of blind over this giant manicured food plot and deer just pouring into it. And for most people, it just does not happen that way. Yeah. Um, you know, and depending on the type of public that you're hunting, it like your strategies should be differing a little bit. Like if you're in the big woods, you should be focused on those super high stem count areas. And like, you know, a lot of guys think, uh, well, deer are looking for um, not only thermal cover, but they they want direct sunlight. Well, if that wind is ripping 20 miles an hour, like they're not going to expose themselves to a, you know, a southeast facing slope if there's not super high stem count there where they have that thermal cover and barrier from the wind. And mm-hmm. just like you mentioned, uh, conifers, like typically there's, you know, if it's a, it's, if it's like a monoculture of, uh, of conifers, yes, they'll go in there and bed. But I, I personally don't think deer want to pour in there because there's the browse level and in, in an area like that usually, um, is pretty low. Yeah. Um, yes, they will, you know, chew on cedars and, and, uh, branches and whatnot, but I tend to, you know, it, my personal strategy in, you know, this is hill country, big woods is find super high stem count areas that have, um, thermal protection, thermal cover, and that offer the browse that, that you've been, you know, that you talked about. Yep. From there, like I'm disregarding all that, all the all the sign that's on the ground at this point. So I'm yeah. not paying attention to rubs. I'm not really paying attention to, to scrapes. If I see sign, if it catches my eye, it's going to be one either a fresh track or fresh scat, right? Related to that thermal cover because that's probably where those deer are probably going to be bedding. And then as far as food sources, um, you know, you mentioned the difference between white oaks and red oaks. And the acid levels, um, you know, those red oaks are less desirable in the early season because the acid levels are so much higher. And that doesn't get broken down until those acorns are exposed to moisture. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get super specific, I'm looking for chinkapin oaks. Hmm. Um, and that's something that that's something that I learned from a forester a couple years ago. when we were, we were uh, actually looking for a deer that a friend of mine had shot. We'd crossed this, you know, came up this uh, one point. And it was loaded up with chinkapins. And chinkapin is a red oak that has, I call it a dirty tree because it just mm-hmm. has a, it's really ugly, has a lot of branches that kind of, um, they kind of come down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a red oak, so it has pointed leaves, small acorns. And that's something like when he said that, like, you know, this is a great late season spot because these, these chinkapins or pin oaks, they hold their acorns longer. So they actually drop later in the year mm-hmm. i don't know if that's something to do with like the photosynthesis process or the photo period of the day and how it you know retains the tree retains energy i, I I'm, I'm not sure if, but, if i'm not mistaken uh, like i think red oaks drop every 18 months so they may be holding on just by like their i, I think it's red oaks that drop every 18 months and so they may just be holding on later based on their cycle of when they when they became mature and started producing possibly possible i have you know that's something that i personally want to uh learn more of this year is that you know uh subspecies identification yeah. and then, you know how that relates to deer and it's something i need to get better at but yeah late season high stem count high thermal cover stuff uh with scat or fresh tracks and then you know personally i'm looking for those chink pins because uh most of the time like through september october even the first week of november 
those white oaks are usually getting hammered. I mean, they're just oh, those yeah. sawtooth oaks, English oaks. Like that's where all the signs been laid down. And then we start to see that stuff shift a little bit towards those, uh, towards the clear cuts, mm-hmm. um, and those types of areas. So that's, that's basically what I'm doing. Very similar to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing, and I think, you know, we both kind of touched on it in different ways is, you know, the guys that I know who are really good at hunting late season, they actually, they know, not only can they, they read sign and they know how to, you know, what find the right habitat and all that kind of stuff, but they actually know like all the different species of browse that will be in an area, right? Like they'll, they can go see it while they're walking through in the fall or the, when they're scouting in the spring or whatever, and know that this has X, Y, and Z in it. And this will be a great late season spot. Right. And so that's mm-hmm. when it becomes like, you got to become a little bit of a biologist because you have, like, if you can start to understand like the species of browse that you have in different places, then you understand like the food quality that are in those places. And that's, you know, paramount during that time, this, yes. you know, this specific time of year, because that's, what's the driving right. force. It's that high stem count. And do I have food there? And I agree with you about the, the conifers where it's like great thermal cover, but like, if you ever walk through like a really heavy or a dense, like, you know, pine thicket or whatever, if, as long as like, it's high enough for you to walk through, it's like, there's shit on the ground to eat. You know, there's nothing, right. you know, the only right. thing you ever find in there is some beds and maybe some fresh scat. Um, that is the only time I've seen it that I would hunt it is that whenever it is directly adjacent to the edge of a high stem count, kind of like nasty, you know, briar, briary bullshit area. Like that's the, that would probably be the only time I would hunt that because you're almost kind of at the same time, kind of hunting the edge of that, you know, and deer still like to move along edges no matter what time of year but then you're kind of prioritizing two things like you've got that really good thermal cover which they might be retreating to to bed and then they can walk 30 yards and be lost in you know a a, a, just you know a briary mess with a bunch of really good brows and then 30 yards back and then they're back in their thermal cover and safe you know so you know but you how often do you get like the the you know the golden goose where you have like the best of both worlds not very often but right right so right yeah the the only other thing i would add to that is just uh and this is something that i'm doing more this year than i've probably ever have in the past but paying paying attention to those wind speeds mm. the drop in wind speeds from day to day I, I know that you mentioned inclement weather and that's a big part of it but specifically i'm looking th- and that's something i always have looked at is the that the fronts and the inclement weather but this year like just running these cell cameras um i think that i'm starting to notice a trend but it's a little bit too early Hmm. um but just paying attention to like those high wind speed days where it's you know double digits 12 15 18 miles an hour and then that drop Hmm. you know the following day down to you know six seven single digits basically right um so that's something i'm trying to pay a little more attention to but i would say wind direction and it your wind direction should always, you know, kind of indicate your access and where you should start to scouting, uh, or at least start a reference point to start scouting, especially if you're in hill country. But, um, you know, that's maybe you're in an area like this area that, uh, that we're in is the winds are typically out of the West and it usually doesn't change. Um, you know, but I know there's some cases that through the season, that primary, wind might come from the southwest and then later in the year it might be coming from the northwest so just keep that stuff you know in mind where you're you know just to give you a reference point or or, uh or point to start 
yeah. when you're when you're scouting that public land. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's like you know, understanding. I think no matter what time, what time of year, what season, it's like understanding what your prevailing winds are. You know, dominant winds are during the course of year. Like this year, I screwed myself because I had a bunch of setups for a south or a south, you know, a west south southwest west southwest wind no matter if it was coming west mm-hmm. or from the south in one way shape or form that was mainly how i prioritized my setups this year because that's usually what we get around here like when i went back and looked at mm-hmm. you know historical wind data like that's the prevailing wind for for that time of year during you know during hunting season and this year i had more north than i ever remember having in a hunting season like ever it's just like i seemed like it seemed like every it seemed like every good weather day had like a north wind with it and it was just like i would have like a spot i could hunt (laughs) right which which was kind of shitty but um all right on to the next question so this one is related to late season as well i thought this was kind of an interesting question because i have a little bit of a take on this not necessarily a take on it but uh i guess maybe news if you will so it says late season archery from the ground crazy or could it work so do you want to take a stab or do you want me to take a stab (sighs) Um, no, I'll take a stab at it. Um, no, I don't, I don't think it's crazy. I don't hunt a ton from the ground, um, really at all, but it's more because, uh, just personal preference, Mm -hmm. but you see like the guy, the hunting public guys, they are killing a ton of deer on the ground. Cameron, our, our content director at Exodus killed deer off the ground, uh, late November. Uh, I 100% think like that should be something that people are thinking about uh, i don't think you should shoe, shoe box yourself into always you know being elevated because yeah. there are times where you, you can get away with being on the ground i think that if you do want to hunt from the ground um you know you really got to pay attention to your wind mm-hmm. you really got to pay attention to um thermals and personally i would say and again this is something i haven't done a whole lot of but those high wind speed days that i just talked about those are days where I think that you probably could get away with hunting on the ground versus, you know, being on a stand and actually getting in within bow range, but you got to go slow. You got to use the wind for cover, um, and just be super, super cautious. And you almost, you know, still hunting is really lost art. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're carrying a gun firearm or, uh, maybe late season muzzleloader, I think that obviously your odds go way up to being, you know, still hunting on the ground. Uh, with a bow, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be tough. I mean, there's there's no way around it. But I don't think it's crazy. I do think you could do it. Um, but I would prioritize those either days where it's you know you have high wind speeds where the woods is pretty noisy where you can get away with uh, you know stepping on crunchy leaves because it's gonna be cold for the most part. So you know stepping on the ground, you're gonna make some noise. Yeah. Um, but I would prior- prioritize those high wind speed days or. Uh, even days where maybe there's some snow on the ground where you can cut tracks, yeah. possibly backtrack deer, you know, yep. cut a track while you're on Onyx and looking at those bedding opportunities and thinking, okay, these tracks, I just cut this track, they're going in this direction. It lays out to these bedding opportunities that I'm seeing on Onyx, whether that's on a topographical map or um, just a satellite image. And just know that, you know, most of the time these mature deer, they're bedding in an area because it's bulletproof. They're either going to see you coming or smell you coming. Um, you know, if you can, if you could be on those high wind speed days where it's really noisy, you could, you can take their hearing away, but you almost have to have the approach where you're coming in from the side. Um, you don't want to, you know, obviously you definitely don't want to be down or upwind of them. 
Um, but I don't think that you want to come head on with the wind blowing directly in your face because I think most of the time those deer are probably going to be bedded where that's you know that's their their visual advantage. They're looking they're right. looking in that direction. So you got to come from the side and uh, you know use those use those days where the woods is pretty noisy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree with everything everything you said, and I actually experienced that last point that you just made, which was you know I was I was still hunting. And hiking my way through that CRP field in, in, in Iowa, and I was stopped at this draw and was glassing the other side of the CRP field on the other side of the draw. I had the wind in my face, so I felt good because I really was I – was, I was hunting, still hunting my way through, but I was really trying to get to this timber line that was over across, like, two sets of CRP fields, right? And so when I saw this draw, I thought it was maybe – that was a really good opportunity for a buck to bed in. I was like, that draw is kind of brushy. It's kind of like – I literally had just watched, like, a, a – a, hunting public video like two days before I left for Iowa or whatever and they were hunting like almost the exact type of set that same setup right and so I I thought of that as I was walking up on it I was like you know what I'm gonna glass this real quick glassed it and didn't see anything so I ended up moving in you know I glassed it for like five ten minutes and ended up moving and as soon as I started moving I jumped you know a boon and crocket deer and he was set up exactly like you said like I had the wind in my face but he was set up to be looking in that direction to where he wasn't going to give up. He had his wind wind to his back, so he knew anything that was coming from that direction. He and he was looking in my direction while I had the wind in my face, so he was covered there. The only way I would have been able to sneak up on him would have been doing exactly what you're saying, which is I almost have to act like the deer now and kind of side angle my way in to get a, you know to basically keep my well. I shouldn't say I'm acting like the deer. It's almost like you have to be in a movable tree. You have to think about where he's set up and how you would want him to approach you, and you need to approach him that way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that point was really, really valid. But I do think you can get it done on the ground, and I think it's all the stuff that you had said. I think you know prioritizing those windy days for cover, also wet days, right? Like to where you can where the ground's wet and you, you know the leaves are wet, and you can be quiet on your on your way through. I think the other thing, at least in PA, because of the the, pre- the amount of pressure that we get, you know, is. You, you you need to have a pretty bulletproof brushed in type of setup or you got to be rocking a ghillie suit. Like, I don't know that you can get it done if you're just kind of somewhat out in the open, kind of trying to park up against a tree or a, or a piece of brush. I feel like you're going to have to get pretty well immersed in the surroundings to make it, to get a, an opportunity with a bow. At least that would be, that would be my opinion. Um, and to that point, you know, I did one ground hunt while I was in Iowa and it was, it, I mean, it was just a, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I grew up hunting that way. Like that's how my dad taught me to hunt was my dad always still hunted. Like we didn't, I never got into a, I, I never got into like a stand or an elevated setup until I was in my thirties. Um, and so I never really, I never had a tree stand or anything growing up. Um, and so it was really cool to kind of get back to that and hunt from the ground again. And so this year that's kind of like every year I try to pick something that I want to like throw into my arsenal. And it just kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with like the saddle stuff. It's like, because I'm not carrying a tree stand, it's like I can throw a ghillie suit jacket on now with a saddle, put my platform on my back and just start walking and I can hunt whatever setup is going to give me the best opportunity. I don't have to, right. you know, say I got to get into this tree because, well, I got this 20 pound stand on my back. I got to hang it somewhere, you know, cause I can literally just toss it down on the ground next to me in a ghillie suit and plop down and then I nothing happens. I can move a mile, two miles, find sign, get into a tree and you're good to go. You know? So I'm, that's the one thing I'm definitely throwing in my arsenal for next year is a ghillie suit, uh, for those ground opportunities. Cause there was a few setups in Iowa that I would have liked to have possibly explored a little bit more. Um, 
there just wasn't quite enough cover for me to not have a ghillie suit and and be comfortable in it. I just you and I always talk about man, confidence is is king in in the white tail woods when you're hunting, especially with a bow. And without a ghillie, it was some type of ghillie suit breaking up my shape. I just I didn't have confidence that the setup was going to work. Um, probably a different right. story if I had the the right the right gear with me that day, but um, but I didn't. So. So yeah, man, that's my my thoughts on. It. I think it'll work. I think you just got to be very prescriptive about it. I don't think you know you can get lucky in a tree. Sometimes I think on the ground, like I don't think there's much luck to be had. I think it's skill from the right. ground, 100. percent So, yeah, yeah. One thing, uh, one thing that you alluded to, but neither one of us really spelled out uh, or clarified is if you're hunting from the ground and you know you're relating that sign or finding sign and trying to relate that to bedding with with onyx, like you gotta have glass with you You gotta have a pair of binoculars where you're scanning and and looking for bedded deer and you don't necessarily like you don't have to kill that deer in its bed but you gotta be you know obviously you gotta get close enough to where that deer is going to get up and move during daylight and it's probably not going to be very far because they have been pressured all year long they've been Mm -hmm. shot at they've smelled human scent they maybe been bumped once or twice so um you gotta get close and you know not having been not like if you don't have binoculars with you like i that's probably outside of your bow. That's probably to me that would be the second most important thing to have if you're going to hunt off the ground is yeah. a, uh, you know a decent set of glass, being able to scan and look out in front of you or the direction of travel to see if something's bedded. Yeah. So and and, and just to be clear, because you know I, I know I was in CRP whenever I was doing that, but like with all the leaves off and stuff like that now, it's like I mean you I mean you can see a good ways with good glass in the timber right now to where you know it's even beneficial to use it while you're in the timber, while you're still hunting through just because, you know, you mm-hmm. walk into plenty of places where it's open. I think the other good thing, going back to the late season point is that, you know, I think you were kind of alluding to it. It's like right now, man, those deer aren't going to move a lot. So if you know where they're at, if you, if you can find them, you should be able to get on one, you know what I mean? Because they're not right. going to get up and just kind of, they're not, they're not moving miles a day like they like they were during the rut or even you know pre rut. I mean, we're really going back more. Their movement style for for mature bucks at least is going to be very reminiscent to what they're doing in early fall, late summer. You know, to where it's going yep. to be bed to food, and they're going to be feeding right around their bedding area. You know, and they're going to get up and mill around there, take a leak, take a poop, lay back down. You know what I mean? Like that's going to be their whole life. So it's like. If you've done your homework through the year and you have some prime bedding areas and they're in thick areas, I would even go back to those summer bedding areas and prioritize starting there and looking at those again. Because, you know, especially if it's not far from like significant food, like great place to start. All right, folks, that's a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you do those two things for us. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Go out there and the fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.